Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 16. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just say this, that this is going to be a little different today, uh, this introduction to God's series on God's providence, which I've looked forward to for a long time, and I trust you have too. Um, but uh, this is going to be a little different, I'm going to just uh, preach an introductory sermon today and then really get into God's providence, seeing that in the Bible, seeing that in the Old Testament next week. So Proverbs 16, we're going to look at about three different verses here. Uh, most of you know that Proverbs is a little different. You can kind of skip around in Proverbs, except after you get past the first seven chapters, there are these pithy sayings and often don't have a, uh, a connection to one another, so uh, you, can, you don't have to have the big context here. But I want to say also congratulations to the Shannons. Just one more thing. I have so many things to say up front in the, in the uh, in the, in the announcements earlier, I neglected to congratulate them, but congratulations. If you haven't reached out to them on this new birth, we're thankful. That is our Baptist uh, church growth plan, <laughs> is uh, the new birth and the old birth, both, both ways here. But we're, we're grateful for them and uh, thankful that they've been uh, given this new life and that we have two here at Christ Fellowship. So please reach out if you haven't already and congratulate them. So Proverbs, I'm going to read again, verses 3 and 4. So this is going to be a lot different than what we usually do here, so I just want to say that up front. Usually we're verse by verse, book by book, but this is going to be different the next, uh, next couple of months. But I think this is going to be, I hope, as fruitful for you as it has been for me. So verses 3 and 4 of chapter 16 of Proverbs. Let us hear now the word of the Lord. For the inspired author writes, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Get this. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now skip down to verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 33, one of those weeks. The lot is cast into the lap. Now the lot, think about a dice here, think about monopoly, okay, think about casting the lot like they did in the Old Testament, make decisions. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart we pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. O oh Lord, I pray we come to love you more through this series. We come to trust you more, that we would know you more and your activities with man. And we'd be encouraged and strengthened, Lord, to live courageous, grace-saturated lives as gospel people for your glory. Lord, encourage us today and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the word providence may be new to you. I don't know. You don't hear a lot about providence today. In fact, really, the only thing I heard about providence in the popular culture of the last 20, 30 years was a show in the late 90s, early 2000s called Providence. And the show was set in Providence, Rhode Island. And so that's really the only reference in culture to providence but leaders, presidents and kings and queens and, and, and legislators of all kinds spoke of providence in their speeches regularly throughout history. Even Adolf Hitler, in his book Mein Kampf, speaks of being the man of providence, the hero of providence. 
But providence is not a new term in history. And I want us to be well acquainted with it because let me say this, and this is going to sound kind of silly. I I know you say, well, that's nothing new for you, Pastor Jeff. You sound silly often, so I'm just going going to keep my MO here. The doctrine of prominence may be my favorite doctrine. Now, I know we say we have a favorite baseball player and you know, a favorite ice cream and things like that, and that may, so that's why I think it sounds silly, but it's my favorite doctrine in addition to the gospel. I'm fascinated by it, and here's why. I'm fascinated by God's providence because life is a game of inches. You get what I mean by that? Once, when I was a baseball player back in high school, I had a chance to be a hero for my school, and I hit a ball that was fouled by six inches. And if it had been fair, we would have won a big championship trophy. And I went back to the plate and I struck out. <laughs> it's a game of inches. That's what I mean, right? Six inches and I'm, <clears throat> my name is legendary. But not six inches, I struck out and no one, alas, knows me except for the guy who struck out to end the game. That's a game of inches, and that is fascinating to me how my daughter just this week broke down on the side of the road, just inches from traffic, and we were scared to death. On Interstate 71, ranked the sixth most dangerous highway in America by, I forgot who, but it's, <laughs> I, I believe that, especially about five o'clock in the evening. She called me, and I could tell she was inches from the traffic. And we got her and got her rescued and got our damsel out of distress, thankfully by God's grace, but... If she had driven about 10 more feet, there was no median. It could have been very different, tragically different. We could have been having a very different conversation today. Life is a game of inches. But God's in control of the inches. And that's what I want you to learn from this whole series. You say, well, that, we can save a lot of trouble. 16 or 20 sermons of that. Well, we got that. Well, that, that's the thesis. Life is a game of inches, but God ordains the inches. God is in control of the inches. Why? Because what God creates, God sustains. He keeps. The universe, of course, Scripture tells us, is dependent on God for its origin and also for its continuity of existence. We are here right now. I am preaching right now. You are listening right now or feigning listening, one of the, one of the two, because God is enabling you. This world and all the planets and the stars, they're not crashing into one another. There's not really chaos out there because God is holding it all together. The sun rose this morning. We didn't see it. I realize there's a lot of rain out there. But the sun will set tonight. The moon will come out somewhere because God ordained it that way. God is keeping it right now. He is, or, he is holding it all together. Take God. If God were dead, as Nietzsche argued, then we would have nothing but chaos. This, would have been, this project would have been over a long time ago. God upholds all things by his power. It is in God that we live and move and have our being. I mean, the central point of prominence is it's the emphasis on God's governing of the universe. He rules his creation, as David said in his prayer earlier, with absolute sovereignty and authority. That's a dirty word in our culture today, authority. But it must, should not be if we're Christians. Because God's our authority, Scripture's our authority, and God governs everything that comes to pass. Nothing, nothing, nothing happens ever that's beyond God's providential government. Rain falls in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and we're not there to see it, but God sent the rain snowstorm dumps three feet of snow in the Himalayas. God sent the snowstorm. I don't like winter, but I like to talk about it on hot days, right? 
God sent the snowstorm. God did it. He says that. He tells Job that. A hawk. Red-tailed hawk. Love red-tailed hawks. My favorite bird. I have a lot of favorite things. I know you figured that out by now. And in the Smoky Mountains finds food for her young, and God gave the food. God fed the babies, right? A college graduate in Louisville, miracle of all miracles, finds a job. God sent the job. God gave you that job. God gave that graduate the job. A tree falls in the forest in Tennessee on Rocky Top. Doug's not here to hear that, sadly. God ordained it. That's God's tree. God's tree. Does anyone know if a tree falls in the forest? Does anyone hear it? Well, yes, God does. God did it, right? That is the doctrine of providence. And there's nothing that encourages my soul and my heart like God's providence. And this is the whole design of this 16 to 20 week series is to encourage you. We've had a discouraging 18 months. I want this to encourage you like it does me. I want you to leave here every Sunday just passionate to live lives filled with salt and light and risky lives for the glory of God because you know God is sovereign. What is God's sovereignty? Well, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. We put this on here. This is one of my catechism I love. And I love the because it's, the language is so earthy. It's so everyday life-ish, kind of like a country song that, you know, I love to quote. So the question 26 is, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And of course, most of you realize that's the beginning of the Apostles' Creed. It's unpacking the Apostles' Creed. And here's the answer. What do you believe about God? I'm going to have to read it here. Where are my glasses? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth, though our presupposition is going to be here, because we're not going to start with the creation, that He is the sovereign creator. He made everything out of nothing, okay? And all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by His eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father. In Him I trust so completely, and this is where I want you to be, in him, I, in him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. He is not frightening. He is our father. And he has your good in his control and in his decrees, he has, he's out for your good every single moment. Children, right? What, what could make you more joyful than that? We should be the most joyful people in the world. So that's, what do you believe about God? Now, let's, question 27 digs down into his providence, and this is what I'm after. What do you understand by the providence of God? This is kind of a definition. I'm going to give you a shorter one because I'm a journal journalist and I like short, pithy things. But here's, here's the, just a wonderful definition about what we mean by God's providence. God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, that's the invisible hand, I'm calling that this series, the invisible hand, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, think of plants here, think of trees, leaves and blades, the corn, a blade of corn, leaves and blade, rain and drought, Fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, and here it is, 
come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Not just any hand, mind you. His fatherly hand. The Father who loves you. And sent His Son to die for you. That's how much He loves you. So everything comes about, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. That's a good definition, isn't it? I love the pairs. Leaf and blade, rain and drought. <clears throat> Fruitful and barren years. Food and drink. Health and sickness. Riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Joel Beakey put it this way. Providence is God executing his decrees. Well, that's a pithy definition, and that's right. God executing his decrees. Here's my definition. Taking all this into account. God's fatherly in- providence is God's fatherly hand. I'm sorry, fatherly invisible hand. By which he meticulously governs all people, all things, <clears throat> excuse me, and all events for the building up of his church and the glory of his name. I'm going to read that again. I'm trying not, to, trying not to choke through it this time. Providence is God's fatherly invisible hand by which he meticulously governs all people, all things, and all events for the building up of his church and the glory of his name. God governs everything for your sake, for the church's sake, and for the glory of his name. And it's just that simple. If you don't believe me, read that big fat book I'm recommending there by John Piper. That's his whole thesis. Probably just saved you like days of reading, but read it. It's wonderful. The doctrine of providence is the practical side of God's sovereignty. So these sermons are going to be very practical. You think, well, this sounds like a seminary class to me. Boy, what are we going to be talking about these doctrines? It's going to be very practical. There is nothing more practical Asked my daughter this week about God's providence. The thing that probably kept her from being more scared than she was out there was God has my hand, his hand on me right now. Right now. God's providence is the practical sign of God's sovereignty and is most clearly seen in everyday life. In the driving of cars and the eating of food, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. We do a lot of eating and a lot of drinking, right? God's providence is in that. God's providence is in how your day doesn't turn out the way you planned it. You make your plans, but boy, they got blown up by like 10 o'clock. That happened to me like five times this week. God's providence was in every one of those messing up, all that fouling up of my schedule this week. Gloriously so. We're going to look at providence through the lens of mainly of Old Testament stories, and see how they lead to the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to end up at the cross. So we will also see Christ in those Old Testament stories as an important part of God's providence because He ultimately works all things out for the good of His people and the glory of His name. So here's the series right here. Right here. Here's the outline. You want to see the outline? Right here. Here's where we're going. We'll give you a little bit of a road map right here. Put those up for me, please. We're going to look at Abraham, Lord willing, next week. I'm going to be gone the week after that, and then we're going to get into the story of Joseph for about, oh, I don't know, four weeks. Then Moses and the Exodus spend a couple weeks there. Gideon, man, I love that story. We're going to see how Gideon defeated thousands with 300 men because God is sovereign. All right, Esther. We're going to take a flyover of the book of Esther and see how the one book of the Bible that doesn't mention God is infinitely about God. Job. Could we do a sermon series on God's providence on Job? 
We're going to look, Lord willing, the entire book in about five sermons. Jonah, God ordained the fish. God ordained the plant. We're going to end up at the cross of Jesus Christ. Then we're going to come to your story. How God did it for you and when he did it for you and how he did it for you. How faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, but it's all a work of God. Salvation, as Jonah said, belongs to the Lord. We're going to see that. We're going to see all these stories and how they culminate in your story. Of course, we're going to see all the practicalities, a lot of application, hopefully, in between. So now let's look at our text here, just briefly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these texts, but Proverbs 3, 4, and 9. God superintends all the big things in life. So we think, well, yeah, God's sovereign over, you know, like the Super Bowl experience in life, right? Over all those big things. But what about the little things? We'll get to that. God superintends all the big things in life. Commit your work to the Lord. Isn't that important to you? Your work, my work's important to me. Like what I do every day. Those are the big things, right? Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Why? Because he'll do it. And he'll do it according to his will. And don't be surprised if your plans and his plans are very different. But he knows best and we're going to see that. Four, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. What do you think about that? Boy, that's theology for big boys and big girls, isn't it? God has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of wrath? What about that? That's a good question. We're going to get it. We're going to dive deep into that in this series, get into Job in particular, but other places as well. Verse verse 9. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I mean, here's so, what's so practical about God's providence. We make our plans. God establishes our way. God is writing your story. He's writing my story. He's writing the script. And we're acting it out by his grace and for his glory. God controls what we consider the big things, even our, our plans. All of creation, even the wicked and their actions, stand under, not outside of, at all God's sovereign design, his decrees, as Joel, Joel Beakey put it. I mean, look what he says in verse 4. God makes everything for its purpose. Even the wicked serve God's ultimate purposes. We're going to see that. I'm going to unpack that this morning, but later. Beloved, this should give us a lot of peace. This should still your heart this morning and, and every day. When you're suffering, you find yourself on the side of the road with 18-wheelers barreling down on you. This should give you peace. When you don't know where the rent's going to come from or the mortgage is going to come from, this should give you peace. You don't know how the diagnosis is going to turn out or whether COVID is going to get over it or not. This should bring you peace. That's our design here. We're on the receiving end of injustice. We love to talk about justice now, but we're on the receiving end of injustice. A lot of unjust things in the world, but God's sovereign over that too, right? Yes, we want justice, but there will never be perfect justice in this fallen world. We know that. So God superintends all the big things in life. Secondly, God superintends all the small things in life. Proverbs 16, 33. Why I wrote that in my notes that way. I know better. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. When you play Monopoly and you go to jail, it is God's will that you are in jail. <laughs> because God is in the dice. Right? Don't say, you're, don't say the other person is cheating. God is in the dice. In the Old Testament, they made decisions by casting the lot. The Urim and the Thummim, right? The priest would do this, and it would come out a certain way. If it was Urim, it was a certain decision, a Thummim, a certain decision. 
It's every decision is from God because God is sovereign over the meticulous things. That's why in my definition it was God's meticulous control of everything. Every atom and every molecule and every subatomic particle, God controls it. God's intimately involved in all those things and all that. People say, well, the football game, God doesn't care about that. You know, the Super Bowl. Who cares who wins the Super Bowl? I usually don't. But God does. Does that mean that my team's going to win? I didn't say that. I've been praying for the Georgia Bulldogs for 40 years now. I mean, come on. <laughs> it ain't happening so far. But that means it's not outside God's control. And that may seem silly, but it's true, isn't it? It's true. Not one thing. Not one thing. I mean, God controls what we might consider the insignificant things in life, which tells us there's really nothing insignificant in life. As my son's baseball coach told them, a Christian man said, it all matters. Every conversation matters. Every place you go during the day, every traffic jam matters. All of it. Those things that aggravate you, those people that annoy you, and your interactions with them, it all matters. Because God is sovereign. And God has put you there for a reason, right? Try grumbling is such a major offense in Scripture. It's a major sin. And yet I do it all the time. And I know this. I'm teaching this. It's popular to say God's too busy to be troubled by the minutia of life. And I'm afraid that keeps us from prayerfulness, though. We think that, think, well, I don't want to bother God with that. I won't take it to God. And yet God says, Scripture says what? Pray without. Without what? That is, we should be in an attitude of prayer every moment because we are dependent on Him every moment. Right? Pray without ceasing. And yet, uh, God's not interested in my trouble. But he is. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. You're His children, right? He, he cares for you. He, he cares about our petty little problems, our football games. He cares about it. And it should lead, as we'll see, to prayerfulness. So God's in the small things in life, the large things in life, and the small things in life. He answers our prayers in detail and encourages us to take everything to Him in prayer in detail. I pray for very detailed things. I don't want to say, God, make them better. No, take the doctor's scalpel and guide it today and direct it to the tumor and remove it and help it cut the things it should cut, not the things it shouldn't cut, and heal them completely, specifically. I pray specifically because we serve a specific, particular God who reigns over everything. And so out of, these, out, of these two, out of these two big propositions, I want to give you 11 propositions that make the doctrine of providence so important to Christians. And this is going to make up basically, this is going to, you're going to see these unpacked during the course of our study. Okay? And I hope these are all practical. So here we go. One. God's providence is both comprehensive and meticulous. I've said that already. The Bible tells us God's providence is exercised over the universe at large. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over some things. No, his kingdom rules over all. God's providence is exercised over the physical world. Matthew 5, 45, God makes his son to rise on the just, the good, and the unjust, the evil. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust. He waters the 
farmer's field who loves the Lord and he waters the field of the farmer who denies the existence of God. He rules over the animals. Matthew 6, 26, Jesus said, The birds of the field neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Watch, we lived in Alabama. I lived, watch a, well, I'd do my quiet time on our porch, and I would watch a mother red-tailed hawk teach her young, her, her chicks how to fly. And that fascinated me. And I just thought God's teaching them how to fly. And she would really get after them. She would sit at the base of the tree and squawk at them until they would come down. And this is God. This is God teaching these baby red-tailed hawks how to fly. He rules over the animals. He sends a lion in places to kill people. Ouch. God controls the animals. He exercises his providence over the affairs of nations. Yes, America. Acts 17, 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. God providentially governs a man's birth and his lot in the world. Remember Psalm 139, 16? You have written them, O Lord, every day you have ordained for me, yet as before any of them existed. Written in your book. Your days are ordained and you are immortal till God calls you home. God's written the book and your days are numbered. You're written in it, right? There's no such thing as a premature death. We talk that way because we have to speak some way, right? We know what we mean by that. But there's really no such thing as a premature death, is there? God doesn't go, oh, I'm surprised. Old Jim, he slipped away in the night. <laughs> How about that? God doesn't do that. We do. God doesn't. God's providence determines the outward successes and failures in human life. Psalm 75, 7. It is God who executes judgment, putting one down and lifting up another. If you're not as successful as you want to be, take it up with God. Up with God. You have as much money as you think you should have? Talk to God about it. It should make us content, shouldn't it? Going that God is, and that's part of this doctrine. It's designed, I think, it's designed for this series at least, is to make us content in Christ. God supplies the needs of his people. God will meet all their needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4:19. None of us probably have gone without a meal lately. I know you have. I know I haven't, you probably haven't either. He meets our needs, doesn't he? Maybe not our wants, but his needs. God's providence may be divided into two kinds. Ordinary providences, that's normal, everyday providences. And God works through secondary causes. We'll talk about that in a moment. And extraordinary providences, excuse me, which is miracles. God works immediately, directly, and without secondary causes. He parted the Red Sea. God just said, part, and it was parted. He didn't use a secondary cause. He raised Jesus from the dead. He did that just, it's a miracle. He said, come out of the ground. Lazarus came out of the ground. That's a miracle. That's, God still does that today. And it's, he does that without a secondary cause. And that's extraordinary providences. Feeding of the 5,000, extraordinary providence. Another way to look at it is general providence. The whole universe being controlled by God. He made it. He keeps it going every moment. He's controlling it every moment. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And his special providence. And that is his care for each separate part of the universe in relationship to the whole. He cares for all of it in relation to the whole. He can keep all that together in his mind. We can't, can we? That boggles my mind, in fact. And I lack the words to adequately describe that and understand, like the mind to understand that, the intellectual capacity to understand that. But not God. 
Special providence. Every molecule and atom and subatomic particle, I want to say that again and again and again. R.C. Sproul, that was his phrase, borrowing that from him, but I love that phrase. Special providence speaks of God's care for rational creatures, as I said earlier. The Lord has made everything for its purpose or its time. Here in verse 4, right? Even the wicked for the day of trouble. Of course, special providence refers to God's special care for his own people, the church. Second proposition. Little things mean a lot. It all matters. Little things mean a lot. God is always at work. God never sleeps. He didn't wake up this morning and say, boy, that was a good night's sleep. You need rest. God doesn't need to rest. He rested, but that wasn't on the seventh day. That was, that was for our, our sake to establish something for us and not because he was tired. God works through secondary causes. Again, one of that moment. Think about this. These old parable. I love this. For want, and to think of the word want as meaning lack. That's an old word, but I like it. Want, lack. For want of a nail, lack of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want or lack of a horseshoe nail. Little things mean a lot. Life is a game of inches. But God ordains the inches, right? Things mean a lot in your life. There's 10,000 little things going on in any given moment in your life. Things you can see and things you can't see, and they all matter. Esther 6. I love it. Esther 6. We'll see this later. But we're told that the king could not sleep. And think, why is that important? Well, he couldn't sleep because God kept him awake. Because of the king's insomnia, Mordecai was saved, and Esther and her people, the Jews, God's covenant people, were saved. All because the king couldn't sleep. And that's a secondary cause. God works through means, right? God works through all these means to achieve his ends. A secondary cause. In the story of Job, the devil was allowed to touch, Satan was allowed to touch, reach out and touch Job and strike him with swords. That's a secondary cause. Satan was a secondary cause, but who's the primary cause? Of all things. God. But God works through secondary causes, and often that's us. He brings people to himself through what? The preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is a secondary cause, but God does it. God saves us, right? So little things mean a lot. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, God governs things which appear to be accidental or apparently insignificant. I love the way Brad Paisley puts it. Love starts with a toothbrush. A little bit of aftershave. You go and you pick up your date. Next thing you know, you're married to her and you got kids. And those kids, for those kids, and I've told my kids this, love started with a toothbrush. A little aftershave. A dad who was styling and seeing the, the girl, you know, impressing her and they got married and they had kids. And you're here because love starts with a toothbrush. Little things mean a lot, don't they? Even... Even to think of it in a silly way like that, little things mean a lot because you guys out there married, you know what I'm talking about, right? You came into that aftershave and you impressed her. <laughs> and now you got a bunch of kids and you're thinking, man, how did this happen? Well, it started with a toothbrush, right? Because little things mean a lot. Thirdly, there's no such thing as chance or fate. R.C. Sproul, our dear brother, 
My dear, one of my heroes said, God's providence is vastly different from fate or luck or chance. Fortune is blind, but God is all-seeing. Fate is impersonal, while God is a father. There are no blind, impersonal forces that work in human history. Every event is brought to pass by the invisible hand of providence. There is no such thing as chance. It is a word we merely use to describe mathematical possibilities. But chance itself has no power because it has no being. So God either causes or allows in his permissive will everything that happens. We'll explore that in detail in the weeks ahead. Fourthly, God's providence does not remove human responsibility. This is what we call the doctrine of concurrence. And if you don't know how to spell that word, there it is. If I've spelled it correctly, and I think I have. Concurrence. That's the way in which God's actions and human actions come together. They're compatible. Sometimes we call it, theologians call it compatibilism. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. Spurgeon, of course, famously said, when asked how to reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility, I say, what? I never have to reconcile? What? Friends. God's sovereignty and human responsibility, Packer, J.I. Packer said, run like twin tracks from Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to see how that works out. We're going to get into that now, but concurrence. Secondary causes. But God is always the primary cause. We'll see both of those in action. And these stories in everyday life, and you see it in your lives. That ball was foul because it was God's will. No, I didn't like that at all. But it was God's will, right? That I'm not a hero today. Of course, we would have forgotten that by now. That was a long time ago. But still, you, you get my point. God's sovereign providence stands over and above all our actions, and yet we act. One of the clearest examples in Scripture of, concur- of concurrence is the story of Joseph, which we'll begin walking through here in a couple weeks. Out of sheer jealousy, out of sin, sinful motives, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery out of this because his father loved him more than them. He was sold into slavery, got into Egypt. He's going to say in the end, and this is the meaning of the story, and I'm giving the punchline before I tell you the joke. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Concurrence. Concurrence, and it happens in your life. We're going to see that in the story of Joseph. Romans 8.28, which we recited earlier. It says it best, God, and the right, I think the, the best translation of that is, for God causes all things to work together for good. Those who love him are called according to his purposes. God causes. As I said before, we're inveterate Democrats. Little d, don't throw something at me, you people out there who like politics. We like to vote, and we like to choose, but we don't, we're not necessarily come for the God who chooses, are we? God does. God causes all things to work together for good, and that should comfort us, right? I look at all the bad choices I've made in my life and how God used them for my good and His glory, but man, my choices, to use a good theological term, they're just stupid sometimes. Just foolish. I'm thankful He's sovereign over my stupidity, and He uses that for His glory and for my good, ultimately. I mean, man's choices, even bad choices, sinful choices, are governed by God's providence. We'll see a lot more of this illustrated in the coming weeks. Number five, God controls man's sin and evil in our fallen world. God is not the author of sin, but sinful acts are under his sovereign control. Sinful acts only happen by God's permission, and they happen according to his ultimate purpose, his ultimate plan for humanity. God also restrains and controls sin and overrules sin for our good. If he were to remove his hand, this world would be chaos instantly. 
instantly. You think it's bad? You want bad? It could be worse, right? Well, things are bad in America. Right? We complain about it. I complain all the time. It could be worse. God removed his common grace, his restraining hand. He, grace is common to everybody. Restraining evil. God does that. Uses it for, for our good and his, his glory. Again, story of Joseph. Wonderful illustration of this. And the problem of evil. What about that? We're going to get into that in Job, but I'm going to say this about that and leave it, leave it there for, right here for now. The problem of evil is only a problem for us. Not a problem for God. It's a problem for us. It's the problem for those of us who always want to know, and that probably includes me sometimes, why? Why did you do this? Or that's not fair. And you know, we've talked about what we get if we were to get perfect justice, got what's fair from God. God controls man's sin and evil in our fallen world. Sixth, God's providence is best seen in retrospect. Some of you have and some of you will, some of you younger people, and I've had this throughout my ministry, will come and say, what's God's will for my life? To which I usually say, I don't know. You probably think, you went to seminary and got all those degrees for that? I don't know. Well, we know certain things about God's will, and I've taught on that here but really, we see God's will unfold in our lives looking back. When I left high school, there's no, it, it, the notion of me being a pastor was the most laughable thing in my entire class. They'd still be laughing about that. By God's grace and His design, here I am. And I see that as I look back. I see all the steps of God's providence. I see His hand in, in events large and small in my life, in the meticulous providence and the big things and the decisions that were made, decisions not made where I went to college and didn't go to college and where I moved and didn't move, jobs I took and didn't move, God got me to a place and got me to a, the place I hated the most. I met my wife and I thought it was awful then. I thought it was great. Just one example. And you see this too if you just sit and think for a moment. God's providence and we rejoice in that and seeing his hand on our lives, it could have been so much worse couldn't it? And a word of caution here. Evangelicals, we are prone to assigning meaning to events in the news. We love that, right? So, well, this person is God's man to bring our nation back to its greatness. Or this is God's man to bring us down for all of our sin. We'll have prophets come out and they'll say that, usually on television, usually on certain channels. But when Adolf Hitler arose in Germany in 1933, all the churches rejoiced because this is man, God's man for the hour to bring back our Christian nation. Because we're inveterate interpreters of life, right? And we got to be careful how we interpret things, don't we? I found that the long, you got to wait, you got to be patient. They'll take the long view about almost everything. Eventually, you may not even know why, but eventually it'll work itself out, and you'll see the big picture eventually. That's why I say I don't know what God's will is for your life, but you'll see it. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, as, as uh, the great hymn puts it. His purposes will ripen fast, but they unfold every hour, right? They have to unfold. But it's best seen in looking back. Number seven, that's why I love history, by the way. Human history, number seven, is the story of God's providence. It's his story. The glory of his name, good of his people. Number eight, God is holy and infinitely wise, so his control over all things is always good, always righteous, always just. Every single time in your life and in my life. Always, always, always. He never gets the wrong address, and he's always on time. 
He does not make mistakes, and he cannot make mistakes. Ninth, the doctrine of providence is Trinitarian and Christ-centered. God's Son is the Father's personal agent of creation and preservation. The Father and the Son exercise one divine power together. The Father created the world by His Son, and the Holy Spirit has been involved in caring for creation since its inception, and it's the Holy Spirit that draws us to Christ and all the rest. So God's providence and its outworking is, is Trinitarian. We're going to see that. Ten, God often deals with humans in ironic ways. What do I mean by that? I want you to see that Scripture is filled with irony. And I love good literature and because I love irony. There's, in good literature, there's always irony. And the protagonist and the antagonist and their personalities and then their stories, there's always irony. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this by that. Greg Beale refers to the outworking of God's providence as redemptive reversals, he calls them. Think about reversals, okay? We'll see this over and over and over as we study the lives of God's people in Scripture in the weeks ahead. Since God is sovereign and since His ways are not our ways, things are always what they seem in God's economy. Irony is the saying or doing of something that implies its opposite. For example, Jesus tells us if we would really live, then we must what? We must die. That's irony. God deals with us. If you would come to me and live, you must die. There's irony in the cross of Jesus Christ, right? This redemptive reversal. That's how he deals with us. So we look at what the way things seem to be, but they're not that way at all in God's economy. So that makes us, hopefully that will keep us from snap judgments and making rash decisions, foolish decisions. In the Old Testament, God often raises up the enemies of God's people to judge the sins of God's people, and then he turns around and judges the enemies of God for their sin against his people. Secondary causes. God heals you by breaking you. Suffering is what? Suffering is terrible according to the scripture. It's awful and we should wring our hands and you should be suffering because you're the king's kids. No. Suffering is what makes you. It's what, it's what strengthens your faith. It's what makes you godly. It's what makes you like Christ. Suffering, breaking you so that you may be made whole. Scripture is full of such ironies. These redemptive reversals will see that. God deals with us that way. And finally, 11, providence is the fuel for prayer. And this is important because the question will inevitably rise, and maybe you have this question, and it is a good question, logically speaking, and we're logical people because the gospel and God's word is logical. He's a logical God, right? Christianity is not just a leap in the dark. The question is, if God is sovereign and he has ordained all things come to pass, and he's meticulously involved in our lives, then why pray? To which I would answer, well, then we should pray. If he's involved meticulously in my life about you know, what I eat or drink or whatever I do, whether I'm sick or in, in sickness or in health, then I must pray. I should pray. It should compel me to pray. I mean, we pray because we believe God is at work, busy at work in his world and in our lives. He's at work among his people. We believe he's there and he answers prayer. I mean, if deism were true, then we'd have no reason to pray at all. I mean, deism means that, uh, argues that deists argue that God just, he created everything. He wound it up like a watch and he laid it down and he walked away. He's letting it go and it's just playing out according to natural law. He has nothing to do with it. He's not intimately involved in it. He's not involved in it at all. He's just letting it go. He's let go and he's not letting God. That's deism. And we don't believe that. And so it compels us to pray. It's the fuel, I'm saying here, the fuel for prayer. 
God is not a blind watchmaker. He's not impersonal. He's not distant. He's personal. And he's in our lives, in the minutia of our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, every single answer to prayer, which is in the Scriptures, is, a, is just a statement that God providentially ordered things in this way for his people. Let's land the plane here. Why study God's promise? I hope you're convinced now that this is a good uh, you know, and useful study. <laughs> I think you are. I don't have to give you much convincing, obviously. But why does it benefit us? Why does it spend 20 weeks? Well, let's go back to the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. Where he asked in question 28, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? What benefit is there? So here's what I want you to take home over these next three or four months. So we can be patient in adversity. There's a good place to start, right? Patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. That's what I'm after. That's what we're after in this study, in my life and in your life, that we will be patient in adversity, we'll learn to be patient in adversity, we'll learn to be thankful in prosperity, knowing it comes from his hand, that we will look to the future and have firm confidence that the great and blessed hope we have is settled forever. And it's not a hope so, it's a we know so. And that we will live lives that are risky because no creature shall separate us from his love. That all creatures are so complete in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. I want you to be encouraged and strengthened and invigorated by that. I want this church to be invigorated. To go out next weekend and take the gospel to these lost people in this community. With the absolute confidence that God will draw his people to himself. That he will work. That he's at work in, in creation and in, in governing the government of this world. But also in redemption and drawing people to himself. Because he's promised Calvin said, for until all men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, and he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield to him willing service. Until you get the doctrine of providence into the, the DNA of your system, into the marrow of your spiritual bones, you will never be thankful you, to God. You will never wholly and fully trust that's how important this is. And why I say it's the most important sermon series I've preached in 24 years in ministry. Calvin said, Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in Him, in Christ, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to Him. Because I want you to know, as people I dearly love, Hope you know that. I love this doctrine and I think it's absolutely vital for Christian maturity, and I want this to get in your the marrow of your bones. So that no matter what you face in the week to come and in the weeks to come, and when you leave here, the years to come, that you will be calmed, strengthened, anchored. 
by Paul's words when he says neither tribulation or distress or persecution famine COVID nakedness peril or sword nor life nor death nor anything else in all creation separate us the love of God Christ Jesus our Lord he give us grace to be absolutely anchored every moment of our lives in that glorious, glorious truth and live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, I have not even scratched the surface this morning, but in weeks to come we will dig down deep, I hope, in this glorious doctrine and see why and how the gospel makes us a courageous people we're able to go and share the gospel with confidence and live life every day, not being afraid of bad news, not being filled with dread about the future, but knowing beyond our own ability to know and to be certain that you're righteous in all your ways and kind in all your works. We would be able to be anchored in this truth so that when the winds, the storms, and the rains the floods come into our lives that when it's all said and done, we will, by your grace, stand strong for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.